You're listening to the Echo Community Church Podcast. We have a passion for being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we hope this podcast inspires you to take another step. Let's join our pastor for today's teaching from the Bible. Judges is a really, it's a violent book. It really is. It's violent. It's controversial to many people. It's not some of the nice, pretty stories of the Bible. They're tough stories. And they raise, sometimes they raise more questions initially than answers. And a lot of people have suggested that we steer away from studying this book in depth or in detail simply because of how gory it can be and how difficult it can be and and how heavy it can be. But we need to look at Judges. The Bible itself tells us all scripture is useful. And so we're looking into Judges specifically for that. Judges is a period of history when Judges were the main leaders of Israel. They weren't under a single leader like they were under Moses or Joshua, but they God actually used different men and women at different uh, in different seasons in different tribes to to lead people to make the main decisions they needed to to defend them in time of attack from the enemy and to try and keep them on the right track as they almost fumbled their way forward um, to the next season of history where Israel would be ruled by kings. Israel doesn't have as strong of a national identity or a national federal government as they do local tribal government. And so each of these stories is best understood in context of which tribe are we talking about here and what judge did God raise up in that tribe to overcome a problem that they were going through. And so that's what we're looking at here. Let me introduce to you the cast of today's story. First of all, we have the Israelites. Um, These are God's people who are settling right now. They're transitioning from being wanderers to being settlers in the book of Judges. They're living now in houses instead of tents. They're trying to learn some new skills of survival. Farming being a big one. Keep in mind in the wilderness, they weren't farmers. They were gatherers and they raised livestock. Then you got the bad guys in this story, even that, and I should use that term loosely. Let me use a better term. The enemies of Israel in this story, the opponent of Israel, because both Israel and Midian did bad things in this story. They were fierce desert nomads. They were wanderers that came out of the desert. They were very hardened, tough, grizzled people. So these weren't people that had like a defined territory or a defined land. They wandered. But here's what they were known for. And this is crazy. And I have to say this without laughing. They were famous for taming camels. Okay. They Um, I don't want to say fully domesticated, but what the Midianites were known for historically was that they learned how to tame camels so they could ride camels and uh, they would get camels to actually obey their commands and they could guide them and they could steer them. And what they did was they used these camels and they leveraged the speed of the camels and uh, the intimidation factor of the camels. Because if you've ever seen one like live in real life, like I saw some in Israel, like they're big and they're kind of intimidating. And they used the camels to actually dominate and to be an advantage when they would invade, specifically when they'd invade Israel. They would ride these camels into Israelite territory and they would swoop down. At harvest time, they would eat up all the crops. They would steal the crops and then ride off really quickly before the Israelites could organize a defense. Then we see the character, two characters in the story, Joash and Gideon. Joash was the dad and Gideon was his son. Joash uh, was part of the weakest, he he formed the weakest clan in one of the weakest tribes of Manasseh. So I was trying to think how to illustrate this. Chase and I, you know, we like sports. And one of the things we like to look at is the power rankings. It's kind of this new term where uh, different 
people who write about sports, write about baseball or write about basketball. Every week they'll update their power rankings and they will make a list, you know, in the case of baseball, it's what, you know, rank number one to number 30 and they will rank the teams in order of their power. And it's an opinion-based thing. And so, you know, if you're team number one or the top couple teams, you're the best. And if you're in the bottom of that pile, team 28, 29, 30, you're the weakest. So if you did a power ranking of the tribes of Israel, Manasseh would be down near the bottom. But if you went inside the tribe of Manasseh, you could also do another power ranking of the clans of Manasseh. So the individual families within the tribe of Manasseh also, there was kind of a power structure there. And, and Gideon tells us in the beginning of this story that his family, Joash's family, was the very bottom ranked family or the very bottom ranked clan in all of Manasseh. So when we get to this guy, Gideon, you know who how he introduces himself in the story to the Lord? He says, I am the weakest child in the weakest clan of one of the weakest tribes of all of Israel. Why are you coming to me, Lord? And so that's the cast of characters, the Israelites, the Midianites, the tribe of Manasseh, Joash, and Gideon. So here's the story. If you were born into the tribe of Manasseh, life was tough for you. Life was difficult for you. It wasn't a simple cush life, even though you were living in the promised land. You had some difficulties that just were assigned to you because you were born into this tribe. And, and one of the things that was difficult was farming. They had, as I mentioned earlier, the tribe of Manasseh had a really difficult assignment to learn how to cultivate the soil in this part of the promised land that God assigned to them. It was rocky. It was difficult soil. So they had to work day in, day out, night and day, almost annually throughout the entire year to eke out a living, conditioning the soil to, to try and eke out enough of the different crops like olives, wheat, barley, fruits, vegetables, grain, and ultimately grapes. It was really tough for them to do this farming. You had to condition the soil, then you had to plant, then it had to be watered, and, the, and you had to do all the work of raising that. And then you had all these other obstacles. I don't know how many of you are gardeners, and depending on where you live around here, you know, in addition to just the work of getting the ground ready every year and picking out the seeds and planting them, you got all kinds of other things you're dealing with that you can't control, like the weather and the water and animals and Israel had to deal with all that too they had all kinds of stuff they had drought when there wasn't enough water then they had floods when there was too much water and it would saturate the soil and wash the seed away they had locusts they had mildew they had wild animals that would come in and eat their crops and then on top of all that they had something that was unique to this part of the world and this was something that uh, these ancient tribes knew as Sirachko Sirachko and that was the word that they use to describe these seasonal, stifling, hot winds that would blow in from the Arabian desert. And these gusts of wind were different than what you and I might think. It wasn't like it would just gust up for a few seconds and then subside. It was a steady gust that was hot and they could last for up at a week at a time without, without breaking, without any type of cessation. And what these winds would do is they would wring out all of the moisture in the air. It would make things extremely dry. It would wick away all the moisture in the soil and, the, and their entire crops could be wiped out in just a week. It would dry them out and they would wither away and they would melt away in the heat. And this was common for this part of the world. 
Now, what's interesting is that the Canaanites who lived in this land before the people of Israel moved in, they were farmers too. And they had to deal with the Sirocco as well. And they had to deal with all these other things. And what the Canaanites did, they put their faith in the God of Baal, who was, you know, the false God that they worshiped. And what they would do is they would build altars and they would construct they would construct these things called Asherah poles, which were basically trees or poles that they wedged in the ground that they would dedicate to Baal and, and Baal's kind of lower gods that operated under his leadership. And they the Canaanites believed that if they would put up kind of like these totem poles, scarecrows, so to speak, but they called them Asherah poles, that they would put these things up that Baal and his gods would protect them from mildew and locusts and the Sirocco, as long as they honored Baal, they believed he would protect their their livelihood and their income from all of these other assaults. And what's interesting is that we learn in Judges that the tribe of Manasseh started to buy into this strategy. They were so desperate for protection for the, from their crops and for their income that what the tribe of Manasseh did was that they built an altar to Baal. Uh, at, at the very prominent place of their of their village of the, of where they camped and they, where they were settling, they also construct. They dedicated a tree to uh, the god of Astarte, which was Baal's consort, as an appeal to these pagan gods to protect them. And the sacred tree was called, like I said, an Asherah pole. And so you have a people who were scared. They were anxious. They were worried about their income. They were worried about their ability to provide. They were, they were uncertain about their livelihood. And, they, and it caused them to abandon their faith in God and put their faith in something more tangible. That's when Judges begins with one of its famous transition statements. The very beginning of Judges chapter 6 says, Israel once again did evil in the sight of God. So they replaced their faith in God with faith in Baal and the Nasherah pole and believed that they would provide them safety. And so the evil that Israel did was they elevated, they elevated something else above God, something else they looked to for protection, something else they looked to for security, something else they looked to for provision. And they put more faith and hope and effort and prominence and confidence in that than they did in the one true God. And this angered God. So uh, what God did as a result, he turned them over to the Midianites. So what would happen is every year at harvest time, at each individual harvest, they were harvest throughout the year. If you study their calendar, I won't nerd out on that. I'm already nerding out way too much. But, you know, when the when the wheat was ready to harvest or when the olives were ready to harvest, when the figs were ready, well, they weren't planting figs, but uh, wheat, barley, uh, fruits and vegetables, grapes. At harvest time, when it was ready to pick that fruit, the Midianites, um, they'd ride in on these fleets of camels, and they would swoop down with great speed, and the Midianites would scavenge all of the crops, and they'd scare off the tribe of Manasseh, and, they, and the Midianites would scoop up the crops they'd, crops, they'd destroy whatever they couldn't carry, and they'd ride off before Manasseh could organize a defense. So think about how difficult life is for Manasseh. You work your fingers to the bone all year long, just for somebody to swoop in and take all your money. That's what some people say. That's how some people feel it is when they get their paycheck. It's like, I worked this hard and the government came in and took all this money out and here's what I have left. They didn't even have anything left. They had no net in their paycheck. 
And for seven long years, they were just being bullied by the Midianites, and they were really outnumbered. Manasseh was weak. They couldn't defend themselves. Midianites were much stronger, much better organized. They had camels for crying out loud. They were, there was no hope in sight. And after seven years of this, the book of Judges tells us that Israel cried out to the Lord for help. So God released help to them in the form of a young, unassuming, weak man named Gideon, who in his own confession to the angel of the Lord says, I am the weakest child in the weakest clan in the weakest tribe of Manasseh. Why are you coming to me? So God sends an angel to Gideon with a messenger uh, or with a message from God. Angel says to Gideon, you know, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. And Gideon looks around because he's husking what, you know, he's husking wheat inside of a wine press trying to hide from the Midianites. And he goes, he looks around he's like mighty warrior. You got the wrong guy. I'm not the mighty warrior. But you see, God sees you differently than you see yourself. When the Lord looked at Gideon, he didn't see the weakest of the weak. He didn't see somebody who was inferior. He didn't see someone with, you know, a really lackluster LinkedIn profile. He didn't see someone who was undereducated or unqualified. He, he saw Gideon as he could be with God on his side. He saw all of the potential in Gideon. And he spoke to him in a way that Gideon didn't see in himself. God says, mighty warrior. I'm with you. And what made him mighty wasn't his qualifications. What made Gideon mighty was that the Lord was with him. And I want to tell you something, friend. If God is with you, he sees you much differently than you see yourself. And one of the healthiest things you can do in your life is learn to think about you the way God does, not the way you do. To see yourself through the Lord's eyes, not through your own eyes. To not argue with God about his opinion of you. And, and you know, if you get nothing else from what I say, I hope I'm speaking to at least one person today. Would you please adopt God's opinion of yourself and let go of the way that you see yourself? Look through look at yourself through through his lens, not yours. Mighty warrior, I'm with you. The reality is Gideon was reluctant at first. God comes to Gideon and says, I've I've heard the cries of my people. I'm gonna deliver you and I'm gonna use you to do it. Gideon eventually agrees to get on board with God's plan and says, all right, use me. I'm ready. You can use me to lead your people. I'll do. So what happens next? Gideon goes to bed and God comes and talks to Gideon at night. And here's what he says. I'm going to read from Judges chapter six, verse 25. That night, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old, pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. And then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar using, the, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took 10 of his servants. Now, why didn't he go by himself? We'll come back to this. He takes 10 of his servants and he did as the Lord commanded, but he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. Let me pause here just for a second. God gives Gideon this, it's actually a pretty big assignment. He says, the first thing you need to do before I deliver your people, before I rescue you, before we wipe out the Midianites, you need to do something first. You need to, you need to tear down the altar of Baal. You need to cut down the Asherah pole. 
You need to replace those things by building a new altar to me. You need to slaughter one of your father's bulls. And then you need to offer it as a sacrifice. He had to get all of that work done before the sun came up. That's a lot of work to do. It was no small job to take down an altar. I mean, these things had heavy stones. They were probably anchored or, you know, somehow molded into place and cut down the Asher pole. So Gideon had to take a work crew with him to get it done. But he gets all this work done at night. He tears down the altar to Baal. He cuts down the Asherah pole, and then he builds a brand new altar on the hilltop, uh, altar to the Lord on this hilltop sanctuary. And then he slaughters a bull, and he takes the bull and the blood of the bull, and he burns it on this altar as an offering to the Lord. Now, why in the world does God choose to do this here? Here's why. I want you to do something. I want you to blink your eyes a few times. How much effort did that take? Minimal, right? Probably the least amount of effort you can invest into anything is blinking your eyes. It would take God less effort than that to wipe out all the Midianites. You understand this? Deliverance was not hard for God to do. It was not hard at all. It took next. It would take God next to no effort to wipe out the many less effort than it takes us to blink our eyes. Would it take God to wipe out a whole people? It's not a big project for Him. It's not a big project for God to deliver you and me either. Deliverance is not hard work for God. Here was the problem: there was a barrier that the people put up that was preventing God from delivering them. God's deliverance is easy for God once we take down the barriers. You see, the whole point of the beginning of this story is to let us know that the Midianites and the problems that Manasseh was having with Midian, the Israelites brought it on themselves. Their life had a lot of difficulty to begin with just based on the fact of who they were, where they were born, the time they lived them lived in, where they grew up. They didn't choose those things. Those were just difficulties that were normal for life. But they heaped extra trouble on top of that by abandoning God and started to do things the way the culture told them to do things. And God knew, like, look, the main problem here is not the Midianites. The problem was you abandoned me and you put your faith in an altar and an Asherah pole. And unless we deal with the barriers, my deliverance is not going to do any good long term. There's a lesson in that for all of us. Understand it's no problem for God to deliver us. But unless he really deals with the barriers we've already put up in our heart, we're doomed to put ourselves right back into this position again. Let me move on. What happened next when the people woke up? Early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. They found out that the thing they put there, the market crashed, man. <laughs> it was gone. In their place, a new altar had been built. And on it were the remains of the bull that was still smoldering that had been sacrificed. And here's how they react to this. Now understand, these are God's people here. They say, who did this? And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the men demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and cutting down the Asherah pole. Look how far gone these people were. They had so abandoned their faith in God that they were ready to put to death the person who tore down their idols and built back up an altar to God. I just want you to understand when you're dealing with people 
who put their faith in something other and God, and you start challenging that other thing, they're going to get mad. I mean, you start challenging people who put their faith in money and materialism, you start challenging them about sacrificing their material passions and giving, uh, they get mad. They get mad. You start talking to people about, uh, I, I won't rattle everybody's cages before, but listen, I know as a pastor, it, almost every time I speak, I'm going to rattle somebody's cage. And you start talking about things that they have elevated in importance over what God thinks. And you'd like to think that every time we have those things challenged, that we respond with humility and say, you're right, that's out of order in my life. My thoughts and opinions about all these different uh, politics, race, money, relationships, wealth, sacrifice, serving, giving, being involved in a church. I've got all these things out of order. But most people just get angry when it's, you know, they, they cheer you on when it's something that's not their idol. But when you deal with their idol, they get angry. They get angry. And these people are angry. They wanted to kill Gideon. Here's what jo Joash says. He shouted to the mob that confronted him. This is Gideon's dad. He says, why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was named Jerub Baal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. First thing he had to do was cut down the Asherah pole. He had to tear down the altar of Baal. He had to build an altar to the Lord. Then he was supposed to bring the sacrifice with the blood of a dead bull and offer it to the Lord. Really, why was he doing that? It was, it was an act of forgiveness, an act of repentance. He had to bring blood to ask God to forgive his tribe for the sin of idolatry. So what's the application here? I'll just share with you a few things. First thing I wrote down, life can be tough. Actually, let me say that better. Life is difficult. It's beautiful. It's a gift from God. And it's filled with difficulties. Life can be tough, but abandoning God will make it tougher. Manasseh, that whole tribe, there were certain common, this is a theme through all the book of Judges. There's certain difficulties and struggles you're going to have in life that are just, com I call them just common, they're common troubles. They come along with life. You didn't necessarily pick them or choose them. They're not a direct result of a bad choice you made. They're just part of living in a fallen, broken world. And the closer you draw to Jesus and the more like Christ you become, the more discerning you'll be over recognizing the origin of your trouble. So there's a certain kind of trouble you're going to deal with that's just common to life. Manasseh, you know, they didn't pick, you know, those kids didn't pick where they were born. They didn't pick who they were born to. They didn't pick where they grew up. They didn't pick their tribe. They didn't pick their name. But yet they were assigned some certain difficulties just because of who they were, where they were born, where they grew up. However, they heaped more difficulty upon themselves because they abandoned God in the midst of their trouble and they started living life their own way and adopting things from the culture that they thought would be more effective in preserving their way of life. You know, we haven't had church together kind of the old way since March. It's been over five months. And in that time, you know, I don't even know, I don't know who's part of Echo anymore. We have our drive-in service crowd. We have our crowd that's coming to Facebook and live streams faithfully every week. And then we have another group that is just drifting. And I don't know, I don't know how each of you are doing spiritually. You know, when you, when you go into certain places around here right now, you have to get your temperature checked.
And, you know, one of the ways we check to see if we're healthy right now is we check our temperature regularly every day. The CDC recommends 104.4 degrees or less, you're good to go. And you regularly take your temperature and you keep an eye on that. And my question to you is, since this whole pandemic started, what was your temperature spiritually February, March, before this thing started? How was your prayer life? Were you studying the Bible? Were you experiencing God's presence on your own time every day? Were you having regular God moments? Were you carving out time each day to, to exercise yourself spiritually? Were you sharing your faith? Were you getting into conversations with were you getting into spiritual conversations with a spouse or with a close friend or uh, somebody else where you can actually talk out your faith with people? What was your temperature like then? And I want you to compare it to what your temperature spiritually is like today. We are living in difficult times, very uncertain times, historically uncertain times. I don't know that we picked or chose to live through this pandemic. And I don't have a crystal ball and I can't tell you what this is going to look like a week or a month or a year from now. And it affects all of us. You know, this COVID depression thing is real. COVID anxiety is real. It's real and it's tough. But my question to you is, have you abandoned, have you cooled down in your pursuit of God during this pandemic or have you turned your pursuit up? That's something for you to wrestle with. This is difficult, but abandoning God, turning to all kinds of other things to try and deal with the uncertainty of this pandemic, that's not the path to your deliverance. That's not the path to peace. It's not the path to, to, to uh, purpose. It's not the path to meaning. It's not the path to security. I want you to learn from this story. story. Life was difficult for Manasseh. But when they turned away from God, they compounded their problems. It didn't make them better. Second thing I see is the good news is that you're never too far gone to cry out to God for help. Even as broken and messed up as they were, even seven years into this, when Manasseh and Israel cried out to God for help, he heard them and he responded. And I want you to know something. If you know you've abandoned God, if you know you've cooled in your relationship with him, if you know you're, you're in a season of brokenness and you're in a mess, you're never too far gone to cry out to God for help. It's the thing I love about God. You can call out to him today for his grace and for his mercy and he'll hear you and he'll come to your rescue and he'll come to deal with the things in our heart and to bring deliverance and healing and wholeness to you. Third thing I wrote down, and I've taught on this before, so I won't go into great detail, but God doesn't call the already qualified. He qualifies those he calls. God didn't seek out the person with the best profile to be the deliverer, the judge for the tribe of Manasseh. He didn't pick the person we would have picked. He actually picked the least, the literally, the least qualified, the least likely person he could have picked. If he looked at everybody's resume, and we all have one, we all have a resume, we all have gifts, we all have skills, we all have attributes, we all have resources, and none of them are equal, and none of them are identical. Some of us has more strength than others. Some of us have more leadership capacity than others. Some of us have more wealth than others. Some of us have more experience than others. God hands out his gifts and stuff differently. But this is a story about God choosing the least qualified person of all to make 
the judge. Now, God doesn't always choose the person that we wouldn't pick. In fact, later on, you know, he goes to the strong, powerful Samson, the hunk, the, the big guy in the tribe of Dan, and he picks Samson to be. So sometimes he chooses the person we think is the most logical choice. God can do whatever he wants, however he wants. He can use anybody. But the point is this. God qualified Gideon by going with him. And I want you, God is not disqualifying you simply because you look at yourself and you say, I don't have the talents, the abilities, the opportunities, the resources of somebody else. He wouldn't choose me. I'm not qualified to lead a small group. I'm not qualified to volunteer at my church. I'm not, I'm not the most likely to learn to be generous. I'm not qualified to share my faith with my brother who's lost and struggling. Listen, it's not about you. None of us have a resume that impresses God. God doesn't look at the resume to figure out who to hire. He simply says, if you'll welcome me to go along with you, me being with you is your resume. Number four, God created every human being to be a worshiper. But God allows us to choose who or what we worship. The crazy thing about this story is you think, man, how could Israel get trapped into worshiping and putting their faith in an altar and an Asherah pole rather than God. We, we think we're too wise, we're too mature, that, that would never happen. That's just not true. The reality is we all worship something. God wired you and I to worship something. And, and how you know what you worship is the thing. What, what do you feel like you have to have in your life to be fully satisfied, to be fully at peace, to have true purpose, true meaning, true hope, true identity? What is that thing? That you feel like unless you have it, you're incomplete. That thing is what you really worship. And you think, well, I'm a worshiper of God. Fair enough. But what's the thing you constantly ask God for that you don't have? Is it to be married? Is it to have a certain amount of money? Is it to have a certain type of friendship or relationship, a certain job? Is it to weigh a certain amount on a scale? Is it to fit into a certain size of clothing? Is it to, you know, fill in the blank here. Is it to have a, you know, a more satisfying marriage and what you do for your husband and your wife to change for your kids? You can take good things and turn them into God things. And what it leads you to is, it leads you to idolatry. A lot of people look at God as a simple delivery mechanism to give them the idol that they really want to have. The problem is you will die for all of those idols, but none of those idols will ever die for you. And it's a challenge for us to say, you know, I recognize God designed all of us to worship something, to look to something to form our identity and meaning and purpose and hope. And Anything else other than God that occupies that space in your life is an idol. And it has to be lowered in the right. Sometimes those idols have to be torn down. Other times they just have to be put in the right priority order. So I want to encourage you not to be too prideful and think that you couldn't be susceptible to looking to something else that you don't have, but that you want to have for your true purpose and meaning and identity other than Christ. Only Christ supplies durable purpose, meaning, identity, and hope. And the beauty is, is that it's completely accessible and available to you. I don't need Jesus and wealth, Jesus and this, Jesus and that. I need Jesus and Jesus alone. And then finally, the last thing I see in this story, I really see the gospel in here. 
I see Christ in this story. You might wonder, where do you see Christ? There's no, there was never any forgiveness without blood. And the bull in the story is a sign that God required a blood sacrifice before you could forgive Manasseh for their sins and swoop in and be their deliverer. And it's an arrow that points ahead to Jesus. The bull didn't take their sins away. It was a sign that pointed to Jesus, the great lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And I want you to know today that our sins still require a blood sacrifice. Something has to die and pay for our sins with its blood. And even if you and I said, you know, I, I'm willing to pay the proper price to God to pay off the debt for my sin. I want to be debt-free to God. Well, God says every sin against him requires a death. And even if you and I wanted to pay off our debt to God, I've sinned more times than I have lives to pay off my sin. If I've sinned a thousand times, I have but one life to pay off. And even if I give that one life, I still couldn't pay off the sin. But here's what the Bible says. Jesus died and his blood paid the penalty of our sins once and for all. And the story provides a great remedy to us. The great remedy that we have is knowing that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. And the reason Jesus can do that is because he paid off our sins with his blood. He became the lamb. He became the sacrifice that was offered up on an altar of God for our sins. And God was showing Israel and showing us that before he could deliver them from their enemies, he first had to tear down their idols and forgive their sins. And that's all accomplished in this story. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Echo Community Church podcast. If today's message impacted you, or you want to talk about one of the topics we discussed today, email us at info at echochurchmd.com. We would love to connect with you online. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube by searching our church name, Echo Community Church. Send a message or leave a comment to at Echo Community Church, and let's continue the conversation. And if you live locally in Baltimore County, Maryland, we invite you to our Sunday worship experience. You can find out more on our website at echochurchonline.com.